because I didn't really have very much as a child, I kind of created this yearning for nice for nice things. You know, I just you know, I just I just fell in love with beautiful cars or nice just just nice things in life and This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with property investor Giles Hill who's renovated and developed properties for more than three decades. He shares how he bought his first investment property as a student for over three times the cost of his parents' house, how he managed to live there rent-free and much, much more. Being a family-orientated guy, Hill spends most of his time on the domestic side of things since he has the time and freedom. Currently, I, I mean, I've, I've focused on, on, on property and, and family life which is I'm very fortunate to do so and in my property business, I, I help others you know, achieve um, wealth through property investments and I have you know, quite a clear strategy which has worked for myself which I like to help and assist others uh, to, to achieve similar success. A typical day for me is, 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 is pretty pretty relaxed. You know, I like to start the morning with a, with a walk or a swim or a little a bit of yoga. I spend time with my kids and get them off to school and um, probably probably uh, do some household chores. I'm the person most kind of responsible for, for, for running my house. My wife has a, has a, a busy job. And um, yeah, once once that's done, I, I um, my day is typically involved with yeah, meeting prospective clients, potentially looking at properties or, 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 or checking on to see how development projects are, are progressing, and also meeting with yeah, my referral network and, and the people who I who I get most of my business with, who I work together with in my virtual team. That's great. It sounds like you've got a very relaxed kind of you know family life based around. Is that how you designed it initially when you first think, okay, I'm going to run my own business. I want to base everything around that kind of lifestyle. Yeah, not really. It was not it's probably not that strategically planned. I think it's just something which has changed as life has changed. You know, I've, I, you know, I had children probably later in life than a lot of people, and I hadn't really planned what that would look like going forward. But uh, I've been able, been fortunate to be able to, you know, adapt the way I live to to suit you know how I want to live and how I want to spend time with 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 my family. That's great. And uh, can I ask, how old are your kids? My kids were interesting. My son's birthday was this week. He's just turned 12, and my daughter his birthday is next week, and she turns 10. He grew up in a very small and traditional village in the middle of England, where everyone knew everyone. He experienced a simple country lifestyle. I went to my junior school or primary school locally to where I was, and it was it was it was a tiny little school, like one of those little character Peppa Pig sort of schools <laughs> and uh, there was 53 I remember there was 53 children in the school in total and that included like the kindy and um, up to well, the age my son is now up to up to up to high school and I was in a year and there was 11 children in my year and I was the only boy. That would have been quite interesting so yeah did that change over time? Shortly after I started at high school my parents actually relocated us to another part of England, to, to Cornwall. So people who aren't familiar with England, if you look at the map of England, that's right down in that sort of left-hand bottom corner, that big toe. And we moved down down to that to that area, but it was um, it was an interesting education. That little village school, I think, for for, for many years prior to, to almost about the time when my sister 
started to go to that school, it had been ran by a headmistress who had a little house next to the school. It was that, you know, it, it was that very, very classical in its in its approach. With then and the and the house and the school itself was just divided into two big classrooms. But that lady, she retired after probably 50 years and she was quite a strict disciplinarian. And then we had a new teacher come in who was kind of a uh, yeah, funky, this would have been like more of this 60s, 70s, um, yeah, with a completely different approach to how teach, how children should learn. She was a yeah, free, kind of a free spirit. And we very much were left to our own devices to do what we wanted to do. And that was, yeah, <laughs> and learn as we went. But unfortunately, I don't think we learned that, that, that much. And it became a bit of a challenge by the time we went to high school and we were classed or streamed with children who had perhaps had a more stringent or structured uh, primary school education. So I think it was a, a little bit of a challenge to, to, to catch up again after that. Was the move from from your original town to Cornwall a big change for you as well too? Because as you say, it was a sm- much smaller town. It was interesting because we went from being in a little village to being in a much more remote place. Um, and yeah, it was a big, it was a big life life change as far as you know, when we were in that village in 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 the Midlands, it was you know, we were like most of the other families. But when we went to live in the middle of kind of nowhere in deepest darkest Cornwall, we were very remote. And my parents bought an old house um, with with a, it was about an acre of land, so a fair fair chunk of land, and they basically took on a lifestyle of self sufficiency. So they didn't go to work. We didn't have very much money. We didn't have holidays, but didn't be you know we were self-sufficient as far as growing our own vegetables and having goats and ducks and chickens to to contend with. That is so cool. I mean, like you think about that now, like everything's so modernized, everything's so industrialized. We get our food straight away just down the supermarket. But going back to the times when we actually had to farm for our own food, grow it, and so forth. It makes you really appreciate, you know, how long things do take. Because I'm, I'm, I'm even, you know, at the moment growing some carrots and some tomatoes in the back, and you know, you're so used to just picking up off the shelf in the supermarket, and it's, you know, there. But like, you realize there's so many different seasons, the timing, and so forth, and you learn to appreciate life a lot more. And you know, that that I think is something that we all miss, and we kind of go, oh, I really want that kind of freshness, organic kind of thing back in. A- yeah, it's funny. We we have a little vegetable patch here at our, at our house in Sydney, um, which is which is a lot of fun. I think it's great for the kids to see that. <clears throat> but there is a flip side. I think as a, as a kid, we went f- to, to to be into you know, to such a remote state of living, and so yeah, you know, yeah, and so lacking in interaction with other people. I don't think it was it was really the the best way to grow up. Um, and and I think as you get a little bit older. You just you just want to be with other people, and you you want to get out of that situation. So I probably left home as soon as I as I could after that to try and go and explore the big wide world. In hopes of escaping the rat race, seeking more space, and a much quieter and humble existence, Hill's parents made a decision to move. They'd grown up in in Leicester, like post-war Leicester, and they just for them. Our village was obviously was 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 ten miles or sixteen kilometres outside of, of of the city of London, but they so city of Leicester. But they just felt that there was a massive amount of change, and they didn't like what they saw going on. So they decided to, um, you know, to, to escape the rat race, if you like. And you know, to, you know it's a time a time of major growth of of 
within the UK. A lot of times I hear that um, a lot of stories in the past that I've, I've had guests on the show, they've always talked about, you know, the reasons why they've moved because I've had a number of guests, you know, some guests have moved six times in two or three years with their parents because of, you know, their work and jobs. This is a sort of a little bit different, you know, I guess, perspective in life to be able to see why they've moved. So, it's an interesting, fresh change. Are they still, are your parents still alive at this point in time? They're still alive and interestingly, that, that property which they would have bought maybe, what would it be now? Um, 45, 46 years ago when they bought that house and it, and it was a house which needed a lot of work doing on it and they never went back to employed work. They just worked on their on their own land and on the renovation of that home. It's just probably something which you know, I started to learn or become some, somewhat curious about um, property construction yeah, from that stage because I had to help my dad with the renovation and work on the house. And interestingly, they're still working on that house today. It's like a, a never-ending <laughs> a never-ending project. At what stage did you actually leave, you know, the nest, I guess you can say, and, and start to explore the big world? It was a little bit unfortunate. So when we moved from Leicester to Cornwall, um, we moved to an age where I just missed out on doing what then was called the 11 plus. So they used to stream children and if you are if you are successful in, in the 11 plus test then you would go to what might be a grammar school or more academically focused school and if you if you're unsuccessful then you went to a school which is perhaps more like you know technical or more vocational kind of more kind of courses and I, I didn't take the test because in Leicester where, where I was schooling at the time they'd already abolished it they moved to the new a new way of working which was comprehensive education but in the county of Cornwall they were still operating in that older model and because I, I, I got what was kind of uh, the teachers at the school I'd been at, I was there for one term, the secondary school in Leicester. They wrote me nice reports because they didn't really know me. I'd only been there a term. But consequently, people read that and thought I was a bright kid. They put me in the grammar school, which obviously was much the light of my parents and my grandmother and people who thought that was quite prestigious. But it probably wasn't the best place for me because academics were not my strength. And also because of that you know, slightly disjointed primary school education I'd, I'd received where you taught yourself, um, I, I, I just struggled. And it wasn't really, in, you know, and I struggled throughout that school. I would have been better off in the, in the, in the more technical school. The only subjects which I excelled at were woodwork, metalwork, technical drawing and, and ceramics. So I was, you know, I had a strong practical aptitude. In fact, I was you know, very, very good at, at those subjects, but I struggled with my maths and physics and chemistry and Latin and the subjects which we had to do with, you know, within the academic framework of the grammar school. After finishing high school, Hills pursued a higher education. Although he admitted to struggling with a more academically centered curriculum, he followed the herd, so to speak, and followed the same academic basis. It's called A-levels. I did biology and chemistry and you weren't allowed to be a part-time student. So I filled in, I had to fill in the time and that's when I started to do, so I did like ceramics and some, and some more technical drawing type subjects which I excelled at. Um, at the end of that period of time, I wasn't quite sure what I what I wanted to to, to do, and um, perhaps a little bit unfortunately, my my my, my father or the way that they worked, their, their view was to kind of do as little as possible, which is why they decided to get out, get out of the work life and go and sit in a piece of land and grow their own vegetables in Cornwall. And um, we didn't, you know, my parents didn't have any real. There wasn't. We didn't have any mentors or anyone else close to our family. We had no cousins we had no friends we didn't have anyone else to really give me much influence in in life so consequently I kind of also grow up perhaps a little bit thinking that you're taking the easy option or doing as little I think my 
that told me to tell the career guy that I wanted to get paid as much as money as possible for doing as little as possible, which didn't go down particularly well with my careers teacher. Coming up after the break, we hear about Hill's early career goals. He was finishing school at you know four o'clock every day and going for a surf, and he was you know he was he had like 12, 14 weeks holiday a year, and that seemed to have some appeal. We learn about his change of direction, fresh out of university. So I embarked on that career, and um, and I just loved it. It was yeah, I loved the camaraderie of of the team environment. I enjoyed visiting. You know, business owners and he'll share how he managed to live rent free in his first investment property. This is what resonates with, with the guy from Plymouth is I decided I'd go and buy a, a house. So I bought a full bedroom house as opposed to a one bedroom apartment. And that's up next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hill didn't receive much of a push from his father to carry on his education. So, he took matters into his own hands. When I was doing my A-levels, I, I, I met a, a teacher there who was teaching the ceramics or pottery class, which is one of the ones I did to fill in my timetable. And he seemed to have a pretty, a pretty cushy life. He was only a young guy, but he was enjoying what he was doing. He was teaching kids who were at school because they'd chosen to be at school because we'd moved into that, those years of school where you were there by choice. And you know he was finishing school at you know four o'clock every day and going for a surf, and he was you know he was yeah like 12, 14 weeks holiday a year, and that seemed to have some appeal. So I left um, I left college and I went to do a four-year degree um, to train to be a school teacher. So it's called a Bachelor of Education Honours degree. And I did it in a city of Plymouth, which is also in the southwest part of England. And um, yeah, did, did that for, for four years. Nice. So that appeal of you know having a very cruisy life where you could just finish up at four, go for a surf and stuff like that, were you able to still achieve that as a teacher? Well, do you know what I did? It, it, what happened to, to me is, I don't know what it was. There were some early influences in my life because I didn't, and, and I don't know, it sounds a little bit sad, <laughs> but, but because I didn't really have very much as a child, I kind of created this yearning for nice for nice things you know i just you know i just i just fell in love with beautiful cars or nice it's just nice things in life and or nice homes and, and just luxury things i think just had some some mass appeal to me and what happened is when i was um whilst i was doing my degree course which was for four years each of those years you went into a school and you teach for you know three or four weeks or up in the final year, you'd spend a term in a secondary school teaching and, and it was, you know, a really yeah, very powerful learning experience. There's just so many different things that you learn from 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 that exercise. But one of the things I did identify was that the teachers who I you know, respected the most, who were helping me learn, were typically teachers who had perhaps gone outside of the educational network. Because there's, there's teachers who go from school to college and back into school, and then there was teachers who went from school into industry and then back into school. And these guys just seem to have much more life skills and much more interest. And some of them said to me, go and do something, go travel the world or get some skills and then come back into teaching. It's not a bad thing to do. So that was part of the, 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 the reason. Also, teachers historically were not particularly well paid, and they're still not proportionally to the amount of training they do and the amount of you know the importance of the job which they which they fulfill but at the end of the my four years i decided to go and 
in, in into work and and I went to, to try and earn some money. I joined a, a a company which was took on eight trainee sales people. They only recruited graduates. You're on a graduate sales training program. It was really exciting because it was closer to London, which was a more exciting part of England than the southwest where I'd obviously grown up and where I'd been been studying. So I embarked on that career, and um, and I just loved it. It was the, yeah, I loved the camaraderie of of the team environment. I enjoyed visiting, you know, business owners and talking about how you know technology or telephone systems, new types of technology, could support their business. And yeah, and I had a, I had a lot of success. Yeah, relative to my experience. Hill decided to move into a totally different direction from what he had previously studied. It was an interesting time in telecommunications because for many, many years, all telecommunications had been yeah, state-owned. So it was it was called uh, what they called like British Telecom, or before that, it was the Post Office and British Telecom. And this was at the time. So this was in the uh, mid-80s when yeah, the market was liberalised and competition was introduced. It's interesting. A lot of people were using very old technologies, and all of a sudden there was new technologies being brought into the country. And then I had you know, I was one of the salespeople running around small businesses. Um, yeah, illustrating to them the, the benefits that they could achieve by updating their technology. It was a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun. So, what's what's some examples? I mean, our technology has changed so much. I remember the days when we had our physical phone which we had to pick off the wall and dial to nowadays we're just all mobile. Historically, they'd had like old-fashioned technology whereby it was a little telephone exchange located in the business and there'd be someone there who was the switchboard operator and they basically, if you called and they, you wanted to speak to the manager director, they'd be putting out a plug from the telephone line and connecting it to the cable which went to his office. You know, it was it, it was that old. And then they became a little bit more sophisticated where they'd be flicking switches to connect them. And then with this new technology allowed people to, you know, very quickly just you know, transfer calls within a, a business environment. So it was, it was kind of cool that there was just such a significant you know, change from what had been yeah, it'd been in, in, in place for many, many years, all of a sudden, significant change. And yeah, this is really the start of the kind of dot-com boom as far as technology was concerned. Yeah, that is phenomenally fascinating because I mean, I, I just I remember watching in movies and stuff like that where they have the switch operators, the ladies usually just sit there just pulling plugs and plugging things in. And then, you know, obviously, their, their role becomes kind of redundant after a while when we replace it with switches, you know, the physical devices that just does it automatically. So, they would have to be retrained to do something else or they may, you know, become redundant and have to go and upskill on something else. Yeah, I mean, there was, I mean, there was, it was at a, at a growth time. So, there was always, I don't, you know, there was always other opportunities and they still, I mean, you still had a, yeah, a switchboard operator. It was just that they maybe had a headset and they could, you know, had a keyboard as opposed to plugging things in and out. It just—it was just like they couldn't believe it that you could, you know, they could see if someone was on the phone or not just by looking at this device. Whereas before, they'd have to call it and then, yeah, because they couldn't—they had no status of what what someone's busyness was. And if they couldn't find the person or they weren't in the office, then they could just page into the warehouse or something, saying, you know, call here for, you know, Dick Jones, and he could go to any phone and pick it up. And people were like, "Wow, this is incredible! This is going to save our business so much, yeah, time and and improve our efficiency significantly." So it was—it was kind of kind of fun to do that. And the great thing about it was that it just seemed like I'd been a student for four years and I used to get £2,000 a year as a, as a, as a government grant because my parents didn't work. That was like the maximum grant you could get. And that's what I'd live on. And I remember it wasn't all that long after that, you know, I'd, I'd had some success in selling. I, I'm getting $2,000 in a month in a paycheck and it just seemed like it was all the, 
<laughs> it just seemed like it was all the money in 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 the world. And I treated myself to a couple of things, some of which I still have today, just being just celebrating that success. But other than that, you know, I I, be, I was a saver. You know, I just had never had access to any money to 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 to, to spend, and that's probably what started me on <laughs> thinking about about buying a property. So how long was Hill working in sales before he decided to move into the property space? I kind of uh, progressed to more complex sales or more more senior roles and you know, to ultimately I was running, you know, when I came to Australia, I was running a, a team of you know, 120 salespeople across Australia. So I moved into sales management and I worked in, in, in telecommunications slash IT sales for, for 25 years. Although Hill had developed an interest in construction due to his parents' constant renovating of their home in Cornwall, he had no real influence to get involved in property investing until he began his eye education. I think the first time that something kind of, you know, I know you ask about a hard moment, maybe something sort of struck within me was in my second year when I was at college. I was in, I was in Plymouth and we, were in, we went into rented accommodation to study and I moved into a house um, and it was an old terrace house in Plymouth, which would have been three-storey, but it had been converted into a four-storey by utilising the loft space. And there was 10 students in this place. Uh, some, you know, some were sharing rooms and, you know, some, and there was a couple who had their own, own room. I was fortunate to have my own room. I don't know how I managed that. Um, and they'd put in like a couple of different kitchens with like a, just a little bit of a, a little space around those like communal areas. The reason we used to call this building Crackleton was because the guy who owned it, and he was a relatively young guy, but he used to wear these kind of these, these, these trousers which had a material which was called a um, crimpoline. And you could hear him as he walked around the house. But he'd bought this house and he'd converted it into you know, student accommodation. And I, I got on with it. I just, just, I was always curious and I always just talked to people. And I was interested that he was a young guy. He had a nice car and that was probably what attracted me to him as well, just out of interest. And he was just explaining that he had bought this house and he'd just bought a second house and he was doing the same thing. So he was buying houses, letting them to students, which gave him guaranteed rent. In fact, the rent that I paid was, went directly to him. So you know, he, his, his rental income was guaranteed. And he just kind of explained to me that we, the students, were buying him these, these properties. Because basically at that time, and you know, in my early investing in the UK, basically, slightly different to it has been or historically has been in Australia since I've been here was that you know, the rent you could collect would exceed the cost of the loan to hold that property. So that was quite common over in the UK. Yeah, it was very, it was very easy, easy to, to do that. Just you know, the ratio between the cost, the, the rent collected and the, and the cost of the property made it much more favourable. And that just kind of struck a chord with me that this guy was, was, was doing that. Fast forward, I don't know, maybe four, four or five years, obviously I completed my course, I did this sales job as a, as a trainee sales guy. We started to have some success, me and the other, you know, so maybe half of those, those, those graduates who came on board also, you know, could kick some goals and, and got some good results. And then people started to look to buy property. And it was a little bit, yeah, back in that day, I mean, this is in the, in the mid, mid 80s, there's still very much a mindset or a blueprint that, yeah, you go, to work, you go to school, you go to work, you get a, you know, you get a job, you buy a car, you buy a house, or get married, have kids. It, it was, it, you know, it's much more flexible. Much people have a much more open perspective on the opportunities today. But it was still very much like that. So it was just a natural progression for those people once they got a little bit of savings behind them. Yeah, you know, their parents or whoever was it was influencing them would be saying, yeah, you've got some money. 
don't waste it on a car a depreciating asset go and buy yourself a you know, get some bricks and mortar so like the other guys i work with most of the people went out and they bought like one bedroom apartments or whatever they could they, they could afford new, new on new developments new nice nice properties for themselves and i just at that time i think this is what re resonates with with the guy from plymouth is i decided i'd go and buy a, a house so i bought a full bedroom house as opposed to a one bedroom apartment and i rented the other three bedrooms out to to, to guys i work with and we, we we had a lot of fun living in that house and you know i was living there for nothing next, yeah basically because the rent that i was collecting was 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 covering my my, my mortgage and um, yeah I guess that's probably how I, I started it I got to you know a couple of years down the, the track or maybe not even not, not that long I got a little bit tired of the of the uh, of the sharing and I went and rented myself a one-bedroom flat just not not far away just around the corner and, and you kept that properly since then yeah I kept it I, I bought it in 1990 I kept it for, for 13 years and then I and then I and then I sold it, and yeah, fortunately it had uh, more than doubled in value in in that time. And when I when I, when I bought it, it did feel like uh, yeah, like a bit of a gutsy move. It was like ninety two thousand pounds at the time, and that's yeah, it's like probably three times the value of my parents' house. Or yeah, it was a lot of money, but uh, it was the you know it was the it was the right thing right thing to do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it sounded like it was a great start to your property journey to be able to find a property like that, rent it out to your mates and live there almost next to nothing. It makes absolute sense. Um, and, you know, you guys have a time of your life as well too. Yeah. We even have, I'll tell you a little funny thing, which is back in the day, which, which, which was quite funny. I actually had a phone system installed in there because I was in the phone system business. I had a phone system, which I, I know had come back from some, some deal somewhere and I got one of the tech technicians to install it at the weekend so this house had like 10 different telephones in it so everyone had a phone in their room we could call between each other and it even used to print out a bill because it was a system which had been designed to go to a hotel so everyone could use the phone everyone got their own own fair slice of the bill and uh, we had a lot of fun making calls from room to room <laughs> Hill clearly had a lot of fun during his years as a young investor but what spurred his move to Australia and how did he manage the properties between the two countries? Yeah, I came out here in um, in 2000, so yeah, nearly 20, 20 years now. I've been working um, in, in, in telecommunications and I'd moved to work for um, a global company which was based in the city of London, which was, yeah, again, it was a lot, it was a lot of fun and fortunately it was, it was well paid. So I was able to invest in other property in the UK. So I bought a couple of um, units in in London, which I could again, you know, you could, it's almost like as soon as you saved up enough money for a deposit, you could buy another property, let it out, and it was just, yeah, you know, pretty much cash flow neutral. And, um, you know, and, and fortunately, I say, and it probably wasn't, you know, I don't remember it being particularly strategically done. Um, I just happened to be buying in, you know, I, and I often encourage investors not to do this. I was buying close to where I lived because I was. You know, it was lazy and it was easy, but that also taught me the lessons of, of how important that area is and buying in areas which are in you know, high demand and you know, a scarcity of supply is always going to drive the prices up more readily than, than in other areas. So, yes, yeah, so and, and I actually came to Australia in 2000. I'd been, I started dating an Australian girl in London and she was due to come back and I the industry which I worked in changed massively. I worked for a company for five years before that, which was used to be called Worldcom. It's called Verizon now. It's the world's largest telecommunications company, 
when I started working for them in London, there were 75 people in the business. And then five years later, there was like 3,000 or 4,000 people. Culturally massive, massive change. And it didn't didn't suit me so much. I quite like to be you know, innovative and creative in the way which I operated as a sales guy. Um, and I didn't you know, care for the structure and the rules and regulations as much as, as when it was a smaller business. Um, so it just seemed like a good time to have a have a change of scenery, and it was a it, it was an easy option for me, not you know not having not travelled extensively, yeah, you know, on my own to to come back with this girl to Australia and have and, and check it out. So we arrived in I think it was like March in in two thousand or two no two thousand and one, I think yeah two thousand and one, and yeah just uh, I just fell in love with this place as soon as I got here. So inspired by Joel Hill's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory. We'll discuss how he has acquired 13 properties over his property journey. When I was buying for a home, I was buying purely with my heart and with no real um, consideration for the investment potential of that home. We'll hear about how he navigated the issue of a tenant who refused to pay their rent. I spoke to him, I tried to see if we could come to some sort of arrangement. Um, and then finally, you know, he, and, and he, he moved out. His time in a development space and what he planned for for the future. What's become apparent to me really was that the, the best way to create wealth through property or to, or to create uh, or build equity is, is to buy properties in locations which are going to outperform the averages. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory.